the day that I decided I'm gonna write a book, I'm just gonna do it, I knew that after having gone through a very trying year, that the only way to assist and empower my healing is to really get all of the stories, release them onto the pages so that I didn't have to carry them with me any longer. Coming up on The Janice Adams Show, Chloe Dulce Lufueso, author and host of Life, I Swear, the book and the podcast. I'm Janice Adams. As journalist, historian, author, race and gender glass ceiling breaker, I wanted to do a show that would nurture our spirits, fuel us for the days ahead, to help us make that way out of no way through these trying times. I wanted to do a show about race, every race, and courage. A show where you and I meet public figures we want to know more about and neighbors from whom we hear too little. Voices, perspectives, insights, we simply need to hear. I love the fact that one critic said of my work, Janice Adams gives us vitamins for the soul. Well, with this episode of the podcast, here's a dose for your day. Chloe Dulce Lufueso is a writer, mother, and advocate for women whose work is driven by discourse on identity and healing. As a storyteller, she supports creativity and belonging of underrepresented women. She seeks to deepen understanding about and within communities. Host of the Life I Swear podcast, she is the author of Life I Swear, intimate stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self-trust. And she's our guest on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Janice. I am so thrilled to be with you today. (laughs) I'm so thrilled to have you. Chloe Dulce Lufueso, Your very name comes to us bearing stories and questions. Where are you from and how did you come to be who you are? Mm, I love the latter. Um, So my family is on my father's side is Congolese from the Republic of Congo. I just so happened to be born in the Democratic Republic of Congo, um, right across the river. And my mother's side is American, white American, by way of Croatia. And so the Chloe, the meaning of Chloe, it means vegetation, greenery. Um, My middle name, which is Dulce, is a variation of the Croatian version, which was Dulcic. Other people might know it by the Italian version of Dolce. And the, the origin of the name means sweet. And my last name, which is Luvuezo, Congolese, it means, as I've been told by my family, mistreated. And so if we are what our name um, reflects, I translate the, the literal name to mean sweet growth from uh, triumph and from hardship. And so I think that I don't know if that's coincidence or manifestation, but I have I would equate my journey to that as well. I I love that. So let's start with the with the sweetest part. 
mm-hmm. of your of your journey to being you. What would you say that was? Oh, such a sweet question. <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely say the sweetest part of my journey, if I were to call them my golden years, um, I would absolutely say my upbringing in Niger. And so, like I've just explained, I'm, I'm, I'm American and Congolese, and my, my mother's work led us to Niger, which is in West Africa, landlocked country, um, and she worked in international development. And so I often say that my mother's biggest love affair in her life was with Niger. She went in her early 20s and stayed for off and on for 18 years. And so... I, I lived there for about nine years of my formative years. It was such a melting pot of experiences and communities. And, you know, Niger living there really exposed me to a variation of values, upbringing, diversity of ethnicities um, and communities culturally. And I cannot replace that with anything else. I do feel like it was the the most essential part of my life education in terms of how I I my thoughts around identity and belonging and community both in my experiences feeling like I belonged and also feeling like knowing I where I didn't just the wisdom that came from having the responsibility to learn other cultures knowing that me myself I was a foreigner that wisdom then translated into how I saw my place in different contexts of race and community since Niger. And so the, that was the most powerful aspect of living in Niger. The sweetest part of living in Niger was the culture in Niger is, is just so, I think the word humbling just comes to mind. Um, it is a, a predominantly Muslim country. And it, the, if I would describe Niger as a person, it is calm, um, modest, and giving. And even with so little, few resources, um, it is one of the poorest countries in the, in the world. It gave me so much. And so for that, I will forever be grateful for the experience of living in Niger. You say that, it, that Niger is a predominantly Muslim country. We have... I think, been given such politically charged negative images of what it means to live in a Muslim country. And here you are saying that it was the sweetest, it was part of the sweetness and the gifts that it gave you. Could you tell us, from a person who lived there, what does it mean to live in a Muslim country um, that you love? Mm, yeah, and I will say a lot has changed in Niger since I was there. The the security is not has drastically changed. Um, I would call it a an insecure place in terms of safety now because there are rebellion groups, um, and I do think that that is a consequence of. The, and this isn't specific to Niger, but when you have a population that is so is so impoverished, and they are they become susceptible to ideologies that overpromise what they can provide and and I think in terms of you know the youth that are recruited to these rebellion groups 
might could be equated to youth in other areas of the world that are recruited to gangs. And so for me, it's the instability mixed with a or, or emerging with empty promises allows or, or gives way for for youth to take a side that and take action and follow leaders that steer them in the wrong direction. And so the the recent history of Niger with uh, Boko Haram and things like that that are portrayed to generalize the experience of Muslim-dominated countries or African um, countries was not my experience when I was there. Excuse me. And one thing, uh, let me just interject, because we're, we're talking about, understandably so, the transformation that took place since you grew up there. And, and I do want us to go back there. But when we talk about youth being recruited and the age groups at which they recruit, it's interesting whether for in some places, what we will say is good, and in other places, what we will say is evil. Mm-hmm. That age group of 17, 18-year-old males is a group that's targeted as the recruitment age, even in the United States for the military. Exactly, exactly. It's something about taking young men who are just coming into their physical power, but their minds are not as mature. Mm-hmm. And they are in a place that is fragile. You know, they may not, you know, they may not see past tomorrow, you know, whether it's in as- aspiring to, to life goals or, or, or knowing when their next paycheck or plate of food is, you know, and so it's when you're, when you have these youth who are in very vulnerable places in their lives in very practical terms but also of the mind. And Um, elders who are willing to misguide them. mm -hmm. Or systems, Mm -hmm. um, depending on the context. Um, When I was there in Niger, I mean, I I, I did have a white mother, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a second, but my mother made sure that we really abided by and assimilated to the Muslim country while we were in Niger. And so that meant practicing Ramadan when... When everyone, all of our neighbors and community were fasting, we fasted. And there's certain, you know, elements of the the religion or the culture that comes with the religion, which I think is probably more predominant, that instill traits of respect, humility, grace for thy neighbor, um, many overlapping traits uh, with Christianity as well, but taken in a in a, in a Muslim context, for me, it was tr- so much translated into the day-to-day of how people move in a way that I did not experience and have not experienced in the U.S. People live by their religion so religiously, pun intended. <laughs> um, um, but so there was no way to navigate that culture but to understand it and assimilate fully into it. It's so rich what you've just said in terms, I I want to know how your parents met. I want to know about the gifts that you say Mm -hmm. came from from Niger, from this extraordinary experience 
that you've had. Obviously, a lot of people are born in Niger. Obviously, a lot of people are born in the Congo, but you have this multinational experience and, and identity that is so rich. Where do you begin when you try to, uh, <laughs> or when someone like me says, please tell me, you know, uh, about this, because I am really struck by the positives that you have to share with us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The first question you get when you meet someone, anyone, um, is where are you from? Mm -hmm. And I've often stumbled on that question because there is depending on the, the person and the context, sometimes I might offer something different. And the challenge with tell me your life story or where are you from, these very high level questions is that as a third culture kid, I would- Which means? Which means um, someone whose the three cultures are, that they are living between, it is an experience of betweenness, are- um, the first culture being the origin of their parents. And for me, I had two origins. The second being the community and the place where you live. And the third being, the third culture is this culture of betweenness. Um, and for my experience, what that looked like was the culture that I shared with other transient expat communities. Um, and, and even calling them or any of these cultures home was difficult because I did move around almost every one to two years of my life. Um, and so it's hard to answer that question. And, and as I have grown into myself, it's been easier, but I needed to evolve the definition of home. But in my earlier years, it was hard to define that because I'd feel like I'm from everywhere and nowhere at the same time. And so where do you start is I usually, and I say the response differs sometimes from person to person because I try to start with what they, with where they are, where our common ground is. And so, you know, I think for me, as I think about home, home has evolved from identifying it as a place regionally, which is what most people imply when they say, where is home to what is home for me and what home is for me. It's where I feel most understood. And that's been hard to find as I've grown into adulthood because this lived experience I have is so unique. But in being from everywhere, I feel that I can identify with so many different walks of life. Um, and so while the experience at certain seasons has felt alienating and has made me feel very much like an outlier, the richness is being able to see myself in other people's stories mm -hmm. and to understand the overlap more than the divide. I think that, you know, just being transient has allowed me to adapt, adopt, and celebrate the nuances more than, than feeling torn by them. And that was a journey for me in how I see my, my place in the world, especially as a young girl. This word home, years ago, I was doing a 
an audio series for young people, and I interviewed for a title that we were doing called Roots and Roots, uh, meaning mm-hmm. the travel roots and the cultural roots that mm-hmm. people take to be being who they are. I interviewed one person who was a descendant, American-born, but descendant of Caribbean immigrants. Mm-hmm. And I was interviewing another person who was from Indonesia and who had come, she she was the person who had migrated herself with her family as a teenager. And in each case, I taped them separately. They had nothing to do with each other. But every time they would get to the word home, they would say it the same way. They'd mm-hmm. say home, home. And, and when it came time to edit the audio, we merged the two together Mm. because it didn't really matter whether you came from Indonesia uh, or whether you came from the Caribbean. Home has a meaning that is so primal. Mm -hmm. And here you are then expanding that meaning, you know, finding your sense of home wherever life has taken you. In your book, Life I swear, intimate stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self-trust. You write about that. You say, I have balanced both attachment and distance of being Congolese and American. Would you read that section for us, please? Absolutely. I have balanced both the attachment and distance of being Congolese American. I was never close to either side of my family and often felt out of place. Within my mother's family, I was always the only person of color. My grandparents hosted holiday dinners and were pillars of our American home base when we would visit from abroad. No one else in the pews of their Protestant church or the neighborhood of their hilly street had coils in their hair or as much melanin in their skin. The interactions I witnessed my mother's parents having with people of color were in their volunteer service and veteran circles. Few affirmations told me that I fit in with their whiteness. And while being American felt tangible and experienced to me, the unfamiliarity of Congo also felt amiss in its own way. I'd barely touched its dirt or spoke its language and had never met two of my three sisters, creating a sometimes equally foreign impression of family and home. Though I was a stranger to Congo, An alliance with the country and the stories of it still live deep within me. I was five years old the last time I visited Brazzaville and held tightly to the memories of that trip. I remember being welcomed at the airport by aunts, uncles, and cousins who threw me on their shoulders and paraded my father and me to the parking lot, chanting songs of rejoice. I felt embraced by my people, and that trip cemented a reminiscence of young memories. In the mornings, my cousin and I filled our plastic buckets with cold water and bathed ourselves in the front yard. The days were spent playing foosball on the outdoor patio and piling into taxis heading across town to the market to buy cassava roots and beans. In the evenings, I cooked plantains with my half-sister and sold them to pedestrians on the street of the dirt road near our house. We'd collected the change we earned for the night and deliver it to our grandmother who taught me to wrap batik cloth around my waist and to pee in recycled soup cans in the corner of the bedroom at night. 
I would think back on that trip fondly as the only remains I had of memories of my kin. Growing up, I fantasized about an intimate relationship with my Congolese brother and sisters. I'd wonder where they were and how they were doing. But the ocean between us made us such distant strangers. In our distance, them in Brazzaville, me in my travels to Niger, the United States, and places in between, was a reminder that our lives were disparate. Though I was born in Kinshasa Zaire, I was born an American citizen, and the birthrights that granted divided us. When we come back, more with our guest, Chloe Grusset-Lufueso, and she is the host of the Life I Swear podcast and her newly released book, Life I Swear, intimate stories from Black women on identity, healing, and self-trust. More here on The Janice Adams Show after the break. Show with our guest Chloe Dulce Duvezo. She is a writer and mother and advocate for women whose work is driven by discourse on identity and healing. Identity and healing, Chloe. You know, in, in the last segment, we were talking about this reach of understanding of the world, really, that you have because you were raised as a multinational child what's the first language you spoke hmm. um i think it was technically french um i speak french and obviously english um but i was born in in Braz in i was born in kinshasa zaire my family is from brazzaville congo zaire is now democratic republic of congo drc but i was born in a francophone country my father and his family that were in brazzaville where we were was French speaking is French speaking. And so I was around French a lot. And then we moved to LA when I was younger and English, you know, just as I entered into school became my, became my go-to language. But I would say that simultaneously French and English, though, as I, you know, just started my education in the U.S. system, English took over and I moved to Niger when I was seven and revisited you know, my, my French. And that's where I became more, I can't say I'm fluent now because I think it, any language takes, takes um, consistency, but definitely has always been my, my second language. And have you learned any African languages as well? Yeah. You know, I, um, there is a, a language called Zarma and it is spoken, I believe only in Niger. It may overlap a bit with uh, Burkina Faso, but Zarma is, is very regional to, to Niger. My mother speaks Zarma fluently, and so I was around it a lot. And so, you know, in terms of greeting folks who came to the home or when we were out shopping at the market, um, I could use it in a very elementary way, but um, <laughs> I could navigate um, the basics. You've mm -hmm. spoken of um, this identity with your Congolese father and your U.S. by way of Croatian mm -hmm. mother. Um, tell us about them and about my families. Parents. Yeah. I mean, let's start with your father. How did he grow up 
in mm. in Congo or did he grow up in Congo and what did he do what did he what has he done with his life yeah thank you for asking that because i do believe that our stories start with the generations before us um and their stories are ours as well and so my father grew up in Brazzaville he finished school in 7th grade he didn't go past 7th grade he was heavily into dancing as is much of my family on my father's side but my father was a dancing star in his own right he joined the national dance troupe of Congo and starting in his teens and his 20s had the very unique opportunity with the national dance troupe to travel the world for someone particularly in my family that was a really big deal to leave the country to have a passport to see other parts of the world that spoke languages other than lingala and french and so he traveled to russia he traveled to china he told me that he took this was years ago and the budget the traveling budget was small he told me that he took a boat to travel to Cuba with his with his dance troupe and with dance troops from other African countries they all boarded a boat and traveled to Cuba to perform and to study dance together and so i think of him and his footprint on the world as a dancer um and then he when we relocated to um to LA and then shortly after when my mother and i split ways with him and left and we we moved to dc he moved to oakland and and up until last year he was dancing at the uh, malonga castellor art center in oakland um named after my uncle and and i i think that that's his his legacy is a dancer and what he's most known for on my mother's side my mother and i i will say my father's family continues to reside in brazzaville there are some who have moved to paris but for the most part everyone is is very central to brazzaville congo you know the rest of my family because of the civil war that broke out in the early 90s many left school and didn't continue and that includes my brother my sisters and it's beautiful to see my nieces and nephews the generation after us continue to excel in education because it is the only it's it's really one of the only gateways out of the country um in a country where there the economy is um is struggling and um there are few opportunities and so i i do think i say that to say that i do think my father's experience of of being able to leave the country was an anomaly on my mother's side she grew up in a southern california white picket fence all white community southern california in the 1950s uh, especially the area where she was in um uh, was very white wing leaning restricted and, mm -hmm, restricted. restricted and as you know a classical music literature lover she often got lost in her dreams she comes from parents and particularly my grandfather who set the precedence of service and i think that is where one of the the essays that i that i one of the essays that i write in here called melded from kin 
the opening line of that essay is, I am from my mother's wandering heart. And Can you read a little of that for us? Sure, sure. And I say that because I do believe that you can't wander until you wonder. And so my mother's wondering what is out there in this world. There, there has to be more than this white picket fence community. I have, she was wondering, and in the literature that she read, it took her places that she could only dream of. My grandfather's service, he was a YMCA youth director. He had the opportunity to be director of a YMCA in Rome. And so for the first time, as a te- when she was in her teenage years, my grandfather's family left the country and they lived in Rome for her high school years. And oh, wonderful. And I think it, I actually do credit that experience for her to my experience of being a wanderer and a wanderer because she fell in love with the romanticism of Rome, um, wanted to study Italian. When she came back to the United States for, for college, Italian wasn't offered, so she chose French because it was the closest thing. And after graduating, not knowing what she would do with a French degree, what do you do with that in the 70s if you're not teaching? She applied to the Peace Corps and got placed in Niger. And that's the connection between me and Niger and her love affair. Once she stayed for her Peace Corps term, she essentially never left. And then she brought me. Um, she brought me to Niger. So the essay that I am referring to is within a part of the book titled um, Between Worlds, Some of My Parts. And this essay is called Melded from Kin. And it's from your book, Life, I Swear, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust. I am from my mother's wandering heart the ambiguity of the path she walked and the permission she gave for reinvention, her belief in human dignity and an optimism for new date. I am also from aromatic steam rising from the boiling pots of my father's kitchen and the sounds and smells of a Congo I barely knew. My mother, Christy, grew up in a middle-class white Northern American family in homes with tidy lawns and flower beds in the garden. She has always been an introvert who has enjoyed the company of herself more than of others. As a girl, she would listen to vinyl Motown and opera records and imagine the storylines that shaped them and get lost in books that took her to places she'd only imagined. On Sunday evening, she and her sister would watch Lassie, and over the summer, she would go door-to-door selling packets of flower seeds. She was raised in a quiet household, strict and minimal. There was never any drama in her home, but there also most definitely was. It was just never spoken of. A suicide in the family left them with a quiet sadness and solemnness that seemed to paralyze connection. Affection wasn't their culture, and while there was an immense reverence and pride for the life path she, her sister, father, and mother followed, expression and endearment were not love languages passed down generationally. So what is she doing now? My mother believe her story has come full circle. So when upon her return to to the US, following meeting my father, having me and coming to the US, experiencing an abusive relationship with my father, we came to DC and she took a secretary job with the woman who is now Ellen Johnson Surleaf 
Oh my um, goodness, the former who president is of Liberia. <laughs> the former president, um, the first female president in Africa, obviously the first female president in Liberia. At the time, Ellen was working for a bank called Equator. And this was an African bank. And uh, my mother was Ellen's secretary. And I went to school down the street from their office building. Um, in the evenings, I get walked over to her, her office and spend after school playing with dolls under the desk of Ellen while Ellen and my mom worked. And so when Ellen moved to, to New York to work for the World Bank, she said, I'm not taking the job and, unless Christy Collins comes with me and gets to work for me. And so that opened the gateway for my mother's international development career. And so where my mom is now, this is all happenstance in terms of how she acquired this opportunity is now she sits on the board of Ellen's foundation. And <laughs> it is, it, it's just amazing. Ellen is an icon. She is one to be reckoned with. She is still going strong, still has high visions for Africa and for women and girls across the world. And uh, my mother's career has, has brought her back to Ellen and, and uh, their journey together continue. <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting and fun to think of it in a different way since Liberia was founded by expat African-Americans fleeing mm -hmm. the era of slavery. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to say, oh, so as a descendant of that, is that our first African-American woman president? Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, Ellen Johnson Sirley. Oh, I love that. <laughs> One could say that. Yes. And so, you know, you talk, you, we're talking about family. What, what did your mom know of and learn of her family that she passed down to you? Yeah. So my grandfather was an avid researcher of our genealogy and our, our ancestors from Croatia to those that migrated from Europe to Jamestown. Um, and when he passed... Jamestown, Virginia, 1619 yes. Jamestown, Virginia? Yes, yes. And when did and they come? That I, I have not gotten as in-depth into details. When he passed, my mother took the torch and carried his, his research even further. And she's done a lot of organizing of all of his research. She's taken classes and really been committed to being able to not just create the, the, the family chart, but all of the stories that are hidden within our ancestors kind of matrix. And I say I have not been as invested because part of me was really hesitant when she took on this, this research project because I was just waiting to find out what she would discover that would reveal how my white family interacted with Black people in the country at that time. The beginning of the slave trade. Yes. And so I celebrate anyone who wants to dig in and learn more about their ancestors. But I don't want to skip over the parts 
of our stories that aren't so beautiful. And I've only, you know, and so I've, I've not been as invested. I've kind of been watching from the sidelines as my mother and grandfather have revealed some very amazing, dramatic, soap opera level stories. <laughs> um, you know, we have stories on, on adultery and migration to the West and careers and all sorts of things. And so I have felt myself lean in more with the recent discovery that my mother made which is that my great, great uncle was actually editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. Wow. And I didn't know that I had ancestors that lived in, the, in Washington, D.C., where I live now. And come to find out, he's buried just five minutes from where I live, from my home. Your and family so makes interesting cycles. Yes. <laughs> interesting um, mm. or very interdirected mm. um, cycles that your family makes as though your mom was the first person to, in her lineage, to connect with Africa, which, which mm. you know, we, we all know that going yeah. back millennia <laughs> is not possible, sure. but, but in recent memory, it, it is. And then here you find that part of your ancestry was in Jamestown, Virginia. Mm -hmm. Jamestown would be Jamestown Colony, Virginia. And that means sure. that they were there either during or shortly after that first boatload sure. of Africans was forced ashore in the United States, in, in this Absolutely. continent, on this continent. Mm -hmm. um, so now you are, you are, the writer in the family and you find that you have that you are descended <laughs> from and you have edited curated as you say a wonderful book life i swear intimate stories from black women on identity healing and self-trust only to find that you are descendant from an <laughs> editor-in-chief of the Washington Post. I'm, who would have How do known? folks do that? <laughs> I know, I know. And I studied journalism when I went to Howard. And so, you know, in my in my in my aspiration as a college student, I thought I would be an investigative journalist. And my my work has led me to communications, but to find this discovery, which is archived and documented in this reprint of all of his essays and articles that document the World War One, And so- can, can you hold it up so that I can see? Editorials from the Washington Post, 1917 to 1920, and Ira Bennett. Yes, wow. I, Ira Bennett. And so, you know, I'm sure there is more history to be discovered, but as it relates to the, the, the white side of my family and um, slaves in this country, there is, there is more to be discovered, and that is the beauty of research. Have you but gotten to read the book? I, a lot of it is very dense in history, but I do hope to make it through. But mm -hmm. I have really admired what I have read. It, is, it feels like a very honest and a very honest depiction of what happened and why. It does feel in and of itself a history book. I'm happy to read. Please. <laughs> and so this is the very first 
paragraph um, in this series, and it was written on Monday, January 1st, 1917. The astonished earth swings today into another cycle of the mysterious journey that began no man knows when and will end no man knows where. The moment of its existence, known as 1916, was full of blood and tears. It saw 14 nations grappling, some of them dying, others receiving death blow, and still others drawing near the fatal embrace of war. On the last day, it heard 10 of these nations proclaiming their purpose to bring the other four to their knees at any cost. And it saw the lighting of new fires, which will throw their lurid light across 1917 and perhaps completely around the earth. So much more to see, so much more to say when we come back. More with our guest, Chloe Dulce Duvrezo, and she is the author of Life I Swear, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust. She's also the host of the Life I Swear podcast. More with her after the break here on The Janice Adams Show. I am a 28-year-old Black male who enjoys reading your writing, came the letter to my email box. I would like to request from you a reading list of recommended African-American books that will help to open my mind. Sincerely, a student of life. I understood where he was coming from. I knew what books had done for me, how the right books had opened my mind and opened doors. Indeed, whenever I give a talk, someone will inevitably stay behind to confide, if only I'd known, to ask, why didn't anyone tell me to say thank you for helping me to break through the code of silence on a vast world of experience, ideas, and possibilities. Well, that email and some of the people that I've met at those lectures inspired my list, 50 books that changed the history of African America, and you can download your free copy from my website. Just go to JaniceAdams.com, J-A-N-U-S-A-D-A-M-S.com, and click on Books and More in the menu. For more about the podcast, my books, speaking engagements, you know what to do. Visit JaniceAdams.com. We're back here on the Janice Adams Show. My guest today is Chloe Dulce Lutrezo. She is an author, host of the Life I Swear podcast, and her new book is Life I Swear, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust. Chloe, the the two, the podcast and, and now the book, how did you decide to, to do, which came first? Which chicken or egg came first? Yes, I get that question often because obviously the podcast was birthed into the world in May 2020, and we are now just seeing the book. But as we know, a book is a process. It is, it is a process of conceptualizing, drafting, and I like to say that part of the writing process is also living in between your writing so that you come back to the paper with new revelations, editing, pitching. So me being in love with words, I knew that I've always been appreciative of writing. Um, I've always also been appreciative of writing as a therapeutic practice. And so I had written many, many variations of my story 
um, over probably seven years. The day that I decided I'm going to write a book, I'm just going to do it. I've been sitting on it long enough, January 1st, 2020. And I knew that after having gone through a very trying year, that the only way to, to assist and empower my healing to move further along is to really get everything, all of the stories that were living in my head and heavy on my heart, release them onto the pages so that I didn't have to carry them with me any longer. I can let them rest externally on these pages. And so I set out to really organize my own stories so that I could make sense of them and come to peace with them. In the process of doing that, I realized how much more powerful it would be to curate a collection of other women's essays, knowing that many of the themes that I've been struggling with, whether it was grief or um, identity or mental health, I was not alone in trying to understand them. And so putting them on paper was a commitment I made as I was in conversation with women about their stories. The conversations were just so rich. I didn't want them to only live on the pages because part of, of making a book is that it is one-way communication. You are sharing your story and they are being received. But me also understanding some of my biggest revelations come through talking them out or hearing other people's perspectives and being able to shift my own. And so I just got so excited about the idea of exploring storytelling in multiple formats and knowing that different formats will resonate with different people. Um, and so I set out to do the podcast and that's how it came to be. You talk about this love of story and you bring it into your writing, that concept. Would you read something of that for us? Absolutely. I love stories. I love the texture and the nuances of them. I love understanding our whys of everything. Why do we feel the way we feel and what makes us do the things we do? For Black women, being in community as we unpack and make sense of our whys and our lives is an outlet that nothing else in the world can provide. Our sharing of uncertainties, vulnerabilities, and trepidations about life makes space for a special intimacy. An intimacy we are rarely afforded because the world expects the strength of Black women to be demonstrated through restraint of our true selves. Challenging seasons of life remind us how much intimacy and feeling understood are gateways to personal healing. After a trying year in 2019, I started to document conversations with other Black women about personal stories that have enlightened us to understand some of these questions as deep dive dialogues in my Life I Swear podcast and as stories in this book. I've always considered myself a cat with nine lives, rebirthed in each new season, one that emerges from fires at times scarred but layered in stories that together tell the tale of the dance of this life. It's been an incredible one. I've lived in 11 cities, five countries, and traveled the world. I've been in abusive and loving relationships, home birthed a prince of a son, grew a family, been a single mother raised by a single mother, 
I have taken risks, led a spontaneous life, explored artistry, and ebbed and flowed through loss and glory. Tell me something you've been through and I bet I can relate. Give me a story of promise and hope and faith and you're speaking to my spirit. Give me a story of pain and struggle and know in my eyes that I deeply understand. I spent years trying to find the words to articulate the breadth of what this journey of life has meant to me, putting pen to paper through stories of love, loss, discovery, and rebounds is the only way I know how. The pages that follow are an anthology of stories from Black women about the falling down, the cycles, the post-traumatic growth, and the resilience. In curating these stories, I've had the blessed opportunity to speak with other women of the Black diaspora from around the country and the world, all who have shared from a place of vulnerability and truth. Their stories capture a range of experiences and reflections that offer nuance and variation of our human nature to discover new facets of ourselves. They represent voices and sentiments of our time chronicled for our collective healing. Collective healing. Um, I often think about what it means to Black women to always be called strong and how exhausting that really mm -hmm. is. <laughs> you know, and also it has a sense of the compliment to it that really is not. Mm -hmm. For me, it seems to be more of a demand and one more demand instead of understanding, as you say with your name, the sweetness part. What is a surprise about you? One more surprise about you. I mean, because I'm forever surprised every time you say something, it's not <laughs> a surprise. But, um, a surprise that, that we would not think to know or think to ask. And before I answer that, I do just want to echo what you said about the word strength being a demand. And I do hope that as women pick this up, they're able to humanize themselves. And those who are not Black women are able to more humanize Black women because that, that demand is dehumanizing. And so strength is in our grace and strength is our, in, in our ability to actually not be hard in times of that test us, but to be soft even when the world is expecting us to have this, this armor. And so the strength is being able to tap into our divine. And so I think you are absolutely right in that. A surprise. So one thing that I, I could only fit so many words in some of these essays <laughs> but one thing that if I were to add another essay <laughs> to this, one that would be missing, it is about the experience of living in other people's homes, other families' homes. Mm. And for about six years um, between middle school and high school, I lived with other families. And for the, those middle school years, it was because my mother's work took her to a fairly remote village that was three hours from the city. At the time, you know, she just didn't have, she had to, as a single mother, go with where the work was. And so I lived with three different families during that time. 
And then in high school, um, the first and two years. Where, where were you when you lived with those different? Yeah, I, I lived in Niger. I lived in Niamey, Niger, the capital. And that is where the international school was that I went to. And so she I gave lived, you that stability. That was the only way she knew how or could. And she gave me that stability by entrusting other families with me. You know, I don't know without those experiences if I would have been as exposed um, or would have had examples of what nuclear families could look like um, because my family was so dispersed and unfamiliar to me. In high school, I went to boarding school and the high school that was at my current school in Niamey at this very small international school. And when I say very small, this is actually a fun fact. It was a K kindergarten through 12th grade school with, while I was there between middle school and high school, at its largest, it was 120 students. Chloe, thank you. This has been an amazing journey. I thank you for being our guest on the show today. Chloe Dulce Lufuezo, author of Life I Swear, Intimate Stories from Black Women on Identity, Healing, and Self-Trust. Thanks so much. Thank you, Janice. A million times. I so enjoy speaking with you, and this has been a lovely conversation. My thanks to Chloe Dulce Lefueso and to you for joining us here on The Janice Adams Show. For the podcast, links to our guest, Life I Swear, the book and the podcast, visit my website, JanusAdams.com. In cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, post-production Jason Dole and Patricio Rabayo, this show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, All Rights Reserved. Thank you.